the two big USPs that we have is that we are like super fast. So we can run polls in real time and we provide representative data to our customers in real time. And the second USP is actually that we can poll very, very small target groups. Welcome, everyone, to Rewrite Tech, the Deconium Developer Podcast. My name is Geraldine, and I'm very happy to be back here podcasting with my colleague, Brad. How are you this morning, Brad? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm good, too. It's a beautiful, sunny day here in Berlin, and I'm really excited about this episode. Um, so far, we've been speaking to people mainly from a corporate background, yep. and so far, we've also been speaking to men <laughs> men yes exactly I, i i agree we've been uh we've been we did have we did have though uh the uh, the managing director though from taconium who was also a woman but you are correct we have been uh heavily male corporate focused yet so it's very very exciting that we have someone from the startup world and a woman co-founder no less first female guest outside of the deconium family janina mutzer is here today from civi and yeah really looking forward to talking to janina Yeah, she's a co-founder and CEO of Civi, the startup for digital opinion data that has developed an algorithm which provides valid survey results in real time. Yanina was also very, very proud of this. This is impressive. Also listed on Forbes 30 under 30 in 2018 and is a member of the Young Digital Economy Advisory Board at the Federal Ministry for Economic Affairs and Energy and has also been involved with the German Startup Association to support female founders for several years. Welcome, Yanina. Thank Thank you for coming to the Deconium podcast. Thanks for having me. Hi. How's that sound? All those things all packed into one, right? You had to listen to that. Yes. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. No, it sounds like you've done a very good research so far. Oh. <laughs> ha, thanks. That's always a good way to start by <laughs> complimenting the moderators. And I can pick that straight up because I know that we are not your first podcast. You have had experience chatting to people about what you do, which is how I know that um, you co-founded Civi together with a friend of yours, I believe, mm -hmm. who was coming up with the idea and spent some time chatting to you and consulting you about it before you decided to jump on board. So I would love to start off by learning a little bit more about that time in your life <laughs> and yeah, and how you kind of got to the point from saying, okay, I want to do more than just review the idea with you, maybe over a firearm beer, but to <laughs> get in and run this company with you. Can you take us back there and walk us through that time a little bit? Yeah, uh, sure. So it's actually been a quite like it has been a, like quite precise summary by you. So I founded this company together with one of my close friends, Gerrit, who's been marinating this idea for a couple of months or maybe even a couple of years because. Um, what we have both in common is that we both spent a lot of time in politics. Uh, so back um, in my hometown, when I was quite young, uh, at the age of 14, I started um, doing politics, like local politics. And what I experienced there at that time is that often you keep talking to people in your in your town, in your small town, and you have a feeling for like the general atmosphere and how people think and what they want. And at the end, it's actually just a gut feeling because you have no valid data about it. And then especially on local elections, you have like quite often some surprises. 
so that was actually then uh, years ago. That was just like a, like an experience we had in common that you do like local politics based on a gut feeling. And then years later, uh, when we both uh, used to live in Berlin, we met on a regular basis for having beers and talking about ideas and about how our job has been annoying us and so on. And I think then like six years ago, he came up with the idea of just quitting his job and doing something completely different. <laughs> Um, As you do when you live in Berlin. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it was actually not the reason why I moved to Berlin to do something completely different. Because I, I often add that to the story that I am not like a typical founder that, who went to business school after after school saying like, I have to co-found so many companies and then I become rich. And uh, no matter what it is, I want to have my own business. I was like... To be honest, I was like the complete opposite. I, I was like quite security driven. I also studied economics, but more like public economics hmm. in order to work in politics. I used to work for the French embassy and write reports for Paris about like financial systems in Europe and uh, used to work for a lobbying association. So like having safe, yeah, secure jobs was um was something that I got brought up with. But then when at that time I was like 24, when my co-founder of today told me that he wants to quit his job and do something different, found something on his own based on the experience that we have had in the past, I was somehow, I know, I was somehow attached to the idea. And I felt like maybe that's that's the right timing because I am only 24. I have no family. I have to take care of. I proved myself that I am able to have a job and to to own my like well, to earn my own salary and being independent. That was very important for me. Has always been very important to me. So it was really a matter of timing. But then of course also the idea because. Even though this idea in the beginning was like uh, more or less crazy, he he spoke about like having like implementing a platform for better like for taking better decisions where decision makers can talk to people and uh, improve their decisions. Like for example, in politics, it's been very far away from what we do actually today. But I like the idea of of creating something and of risking something. And I think if I look back now, it's it's been because of the timing and the idea based on, a, on an experience that we actually made. So it sounds like you both come from a place that... Um that is more of a sort of a political and social background and really found your drive out of creating the tool that you have now from that perspective. Maybe you can just give us an overview of what Civi actually does and how it works differently from other market research or polling tools, like who uses it, to what purpose, and yeah, and do you think it's contributing to that um, vision of that you had in the beginning when you decided first to do this? Yeah, sure. So uh, as I mentioned before, like for us, there has always been a purpose and the purpose was understanding people's opinion better and based on data. So we're both quite data driven. And this is also how we were able to reduce this very broad idea from the beginning to and, and shape it more and more to what it is today. So what we do today is we actually have like Germany's largest panel for opinion and market research with more than 1 million users here in Germany. And we completely changed the way of how to poll people. 
because how it's been done before or like normally is by call centers. So you try to reach out to people via landline or via mobile and try to convince them to give you their opinion for basically no reason. And we thought back then in 2015 that this is actually like the, the right industry to do or to find a solution that we need. So to understand people's opinion better. But the approach was completely wrong in our eyes, because what we realized back then is that like all the opinion that has been spread online. So there have been like these discussions about filter bubbles on Facebook, for example, or on Twitter. So there's no lack of uh, opinion in the Internet. It's just mm-hmm. a problem that it's not channeled. So we tried to um, take like the survey and the academia into the Internet and find algorithms that make that give us valid data based on very, very screwed samples in the beginning mm-hmm. because they're so biased. If people want to want to share their opinion in the Internet, uh, you have to take care that you don't include only like people with the loudest voice, for example, or people who share their opinion like 1,000 times because they are a bot in the end. So that's basically the job that we do. But if I understood correctly, it's kind of like a white label solution. So different media houses or different organizations can embed your tool to do their own surveys and you don't act as a like, central surveying organization. Is that correct? Exactly. So when we realized that we want to yeah, gather people's opinion to, to find out more about it, we thought the best idea would be to bring people on our own website in the beginning. So like online panels do normally. And then, I don't know when it was, and I, it's also hard to uh, re, yeah, to remember who it was, but someone had a, the, the good idea that um, we shouldn't get the traffic um, on our own website in the first step, but we could also use the traffic that other websites already have. So what we do is we embed all our polls on thousands of websites and people get access to these polls. And What's very special with us is that we incentivize by giving real-time representative results. Whenever you take part on the poll, you also get shown the representative results. Part of the original business model that traditional pollsters have, we give out for free. And yeah, but uh, looking at the reach, this is how we could build like uh, the large like, large panel size in, in such a short time. So and maybe just one more, I'm just going to squeeze in one more here. Um do you see this as being a technology that works complementary to existing surveying? Like you were mentioned, the sort of, and it sounded like you felt, ah, oh, it's a bit outdated, the sort of phone surveying or, you know, more traditional tools. Um, so is this like, this is how it should be done from now on? You've disrupted the scene of opinion research, or do you think it's something that works complementary today? That's, I think that's a very interesting question because when we founded Survey, we knew exactly what we wanted to do, but we didn't actually realize that we started to be a competition for traditional pollsters. That actually, like that realization only came when they started to attack us and uh, fight us in public and so on. And then we slowly realized, ah, oh, okay, yeah, right. Maybe we're part of that industry. We never planned to be, but apparently we are. So to answer your question, I'm not against phone calls at all. So if that works out and if that is like the right fit for the right purpose, you can, of course, always do that. The problem that we only see is that people tend to 
answer calls less and less and that's a problem mm. so if you have like only less than 10 percent who would actually answer a phone call then you cannot really say that's a perfect random sample and so it uh, fulfills all scientific standards but other methods don't so i think it's really a question whether like it's a question of fit of purpose in the end and i think the big USPs or like the two big USPs that we have is that we are like super fast. So we can run polls in real time and we provide representative data to our customers in real time. And the second USP is actually that we can poll very, very small target groups. So whenever you're interested in people who have cats and plants and want to move from Berlin to somewhere else, <laughs> then we would be the right uh, service provider because we can reach out to these people that traditional policies don't, uh, can't anymore. So, Geraldine, did you, did you get that poll from them? You must have gotten that poll. You must have gotten that. I can see the plants. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That is my demography, That's I have it. to admit. <laughs> Cats and plants. <laughs> you, you, you mentioned, uh, I don't want to say like uh, attack, but the, uh, the conversation around, uh, you know, the coverage bias and the competition talking about this because um, I wouldn't say being criticized, but you are conducting most of your stuff on completely online. Um, which in some cases uh, have different results than these established institutes, which, as you mentioned before, is the phone call and those kind of things. And you're bringing new technology to an older uh, industry. So how does your machine learning aspect of your technology factor into this? And how do you avoid uh, creating the the replication of biases using uh, technology that you have? So... I think, first of all, you have to see that our approach is completely different. We just mm -hmm. say that we don't believe that you can realize a perfect random sample by phone or by whatever um, that is currently offered in the market. So we just we just admit that and say, okay, everything we do will be based on very biased votes in the beginning as mm -hmm. many as many data that you collect also via phone is because if you reach out via landline you would also reach out to rather old people maybe or to people who are at home so you would never reach out to me for example so that's like just something that you have to keep in mind and then we rather say we try to deal with these biases, for example, by whenever we see that there is a strong topic bias. So we like there is a poll about domestic politics embedded in an article about Angela Merkel, and the article is quite in favor of her, mm. uh, then we shouldn't really take these votes that are given in, in that article, for example. And there's many um, measurements like this that you can consider and how to deal with like biased samples. Yeah, it's interesting because also you need to cooperate with the media, but also they're the ones who can influence the type of data that comes out of the polling. So it's a weird balance that you need to strike between it because you you rely on these uh, um, organizations to also get the polling out there where a lot of the traffic is but on the flip side their their media content themselves can influence your polling yeah and uh, we make sure that they don't so yeah. uh, whenever uh, so whenever we are embedded in a right-wing magazine mm -hmm. uh, we take this into account that mm -hmm. we don't uh, take yeah I don't know votes about refugee politics in an article that is exactly about that because mm -hmm. 
if you take the direct votes from such an article, you just have to remember that this is like a certain group of people that is entering right. the website. And then there's a certain group of people that is interested into that topic. And they're so much more likely to actually vote on the poll. And this is why we have on after every first poll that we embed on the website, a recommendation engine that shows completely different polls. So whenever you start... Oh. Voting on a on a poll about refugee politics in Germany, the next question you would get shown is uh, maybe a question about uh, soccer and about uh, I don't know Bayern Munich, for example. Yeah. So we we get you slowly out of your own self selection there. Very interesting. That's a very interesting approach to a very complicated issue. Actually, a simple approach to a very complicated issue. Yeah, um, and you yeah. realize that most of the approaches are rather simple. <laughs> you just have to come up with the ideas. Yeah. Exactly. I'm always a fan of simple innovation instead of, obviously, over-engineering uh, things. Um, I want to ask you about the the automation uh, of the entire value chain. So this is something that, that, that you do as a company. So what does that actually mean um, in your context uh, of your business? And, and what does it look like you know, working with these media companies? I mean, we have automated the entire value chain of polling because once the polls are set up, we, I know, we agreed on a certain study or survey with the customer. We enter the poll into the system and the system just displaying it to thousands of people and we don't have to take care anymore because the algorithms calculate on their own. That's a difference to traditional pollsters who call people who have mm. like variable costs. The more they call, the more costs they have and so on. What was the question again then? <laughs> no, it was more like, so, so what does it actually look like? And what is it uh, uh, for like, so with, with, with the media companies, how does that product actually help automize uh, it? Because like you said, it is a very manual process uh, in the old school sense where, like you said, the more people, the more calls they make, the more costs go up because I'm assuming that they're incentivized to get results. Uh, whereas you're kind of taking a different approach uh, to this with your automation. I think it's important to understand that we have a lot of media partners as a corporation partner mm -hmm. who display our polls on their website and make it possible that we can automize the value chain because we reach out to many people in a very short time and we don't have to incentivize them further because the product is good as itself. So right. there's no, no manual work behind it. It's just like the product says, like, hey, it's fun to use me. So come on. And whenever, like, a customer comes to us, so, for example, uh, like, a car manufacturer, uh, <laughs> typical German example. Like Volkswagen or Deconium or... <laughs> so, whenever Volkswagen comes to us and yeah. says, like, uh, we're going to release this new uh, electric car next year and we plan this big campaign and we actually want to know whether this campaign works out in our different mm. target groups. And we have these X target groups that the entire corporate works with. Can you please measure it? Then we can do it like completely automized. We first do the setup of the target groups and build them digitally. And then we just pull people who fit the target group. And our customer has an internal dashboard and they mm. get live real-time data on it. Very cool. And the biggest, the biggest thing with all of this data, especially nowadays, uh, you mentioned before with bots, uh, is fraud, is fraud detection. So um, how does Sevi avoid uh, fraud? Like, you know, multiple voting, you know, bots? What are some of the things that uh, you do? Because people could, 
Uh, I've done that before with free one-month trials. I've done different email addresses and such, and I've frauded the system. How does Civi uh, go against that? Because it's very important that the data points you get are uh, authentic. Yeah. So first of all, it's a combination of many things because fraud can be very different. There's this manual fraud that uh, people who are just interested in our real-time results take part of the poll, but they lie about their gender, their age, and Mm. so on. And of course, that's something where there isn't, you cannot never have like a 100% safety that you will detect all lies. It's the same with traditional pulses at the phone. But what we do is we do permanent consistency checks in the background. So whenever you, for example, tell us that you're a man, 18 years old, and two weeks later you come back and tell us that you don't work anymore and your money comes from your pension fund, then we would say, no, it's not very likely. It could be, but probably not. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. So your internal score uh, would just go down and we wouldn't consider you in in one of our samples. You, as a user, of course, you don't realize that. One other thing is, of course, like the technical uh, setup. So whenever we see that a certain, so of course we shorten the IP address, it's anonymized, but whenever we see that um, there comes too much traffic from one certain region, then we block it. Temporarily used email addresses, they are blocked completely. And such like technical stuff you can use quite well to detect bots. But I think one of the biggest yeah, help against fraud is basically that we don't incentivize to give wrong answers because there's no mm. monetary incentive. So you're, you don't profit by saying that you're a dentist um, because it's so hard to get dentists into a sample. <laughs> we just don't give you money for that. And that's something where we realize that the, that the fraud level is, yeah, stays quite low in the end. And as a last uh, remark on that, you don't know who's missing in our sample. So mm. whenever you want to lie about that, you don't know whether we're missing like young women uh, in Bavaria or like um, old car drivers uh, mm-hmm. who want to buy a new one. So that's something that makes it very hard to actually manipulate the system. I have so many questions <laughs> and I don't think we're going to get to all of them um, because I'm really fascinated by a lot of the things that you said in regard to how do you make this work and be something that is, um, yeah, taking all these factors that you said into account, people's profiles, being able to check across different kind of polls, who is answering these questions whilst uh, obviously anonymizing the the people's data that you use and how you kind of come to your profiles and how you store them. I think we could spend the rest of the podcast like discussing perhaps the this this idea of like polling versus trolling, like everything that you just outlined already mm-hmm. in terms of how do you make sure it's not the louder people getting their opinion across in the internet, which is very much the situation that we have today on so many social media sites. Um, and that creates an opinion bias in itself because it makes it seem like these are dominant opinions where it's just people being very, very loud. And how do you make sure that those kind of mechanisms don't get featured in your polls as well? I don't know if you can answer all that. (laughs) (laughs) Squeeze it all in. And just like, you know, I've just been thinking, like, do you have statistics on if if you do have um, data profiles of the people who answer your polls, are men so much more likely to click on a poll and just generally answer and give their opinion than women? 
or other democracy feels so much more likely to answer. And then how do you get the rest? Whereas if you don't believe in randomized samples, how are you going to get that person who never usually shares their opinion, but was surprised by a phone call to sort of input? Or do you not think that matters so much in the pictures you're creating? Sorry, I've completely overwhelmed you with all that. Valid question. So as I mentioned in the beginning, there is a certain coverage bias. So we would never be able to poll people who are not online. It's just impossible because we conduct our polls only online. So keeping that in mind, you have to ask yourself whether it matters on the topic that you poll about. So, for example, if I know if someone comes to us and asks us to tell him or her how many people are online in Germany, we couldn't tell because uh, we would say like, yeah, 100 percent according to our polls. So that's something <laughs> that, of course, we couldn't do. But if you ask people about fees for kindergartens in Berlin, then I would say it doesn't really matter if you are online or offline. It rather matters whether, yeah, maybe which gender you have, if you have a job, which salary you have, and of course, if you have kids. So that's are the variables that have an effect on your output variable. So that's very important for us that, again, like fit for purpose, that we can only do polls about mm-hmm. topics where there is no effect due to the fact that we conduct our polls only online. And this this concept that the louder one wins on the internet? Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that has been the core idea that we channel these voices. And even though we know that certain, certain groups are louder on the internet, we let their voice only be, we weight their voice according to their actual weight in society. Right, which is what you explained earlier. Yeah. The core purpose of our business model. If you look at our data and like if you just look at the panel, we have to say that we attract men more than women. That's due to many facts. It's maybe due to the fact that men like to share their opinion more likely than women do. But it has also very pragmatic reasons. For example, we acquire many users at news websites and news websites in Germany, at least, are frequented or like are visited by men much more than by women. It's very, it's a very sad topic and could be <laughs> like a topic for an entire podcast episode. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, of course, like news are also written rather by men than by women, and so on. Like long topic, but of course, this has effects to us as well. And if you look then at our quality and results, I must say it doesn't really have a strong effect there. It's uh, for us rather an economic problem that we have to throw away so many voices of men until we have enough women. So it's more an efficiency problem for us Mm -hmm. than a quality problem. I see. Okay, well, I would love to, let's get a bit practical. Um, So I guess you've been surveying recently as well, and I would be really interested to hear what, what, how is Germany doing these days? (laughs) What are people out there doing? Especially now that you don't get to see them so much anymore for um, self-isolation reasons. I don't know if anybody else is still doing that. But I'm wondering, have you been polling and seeing how's Germany been reacting to the corona pandemic? How have they been reacting to current political decisions being made? Like, for instance, I don't know, the right to home office or the uh, reduction of the VAT. Yeah. What is the pulse of Germany like today, Janina? (laughs) How much time do I have? No, um, that's basically our core business. Um, So in March, when the first corona reaction started in Germany, we actually pivoted also a little bit as a, even though we are just a young company, we realized, okay, 
we have to think about what kind of products our customers want now if they shut down their companies do they actually have money to pay us still in the future and one thing that we did quite fast is that we started to conduct polls about the overall situation in germany looking at the fears that germans have at the wishes the problems challenges and so on and providing these data to the federal government, for example, or other organizations that were actually in charge to tackle the crisis. So that has been like one of our first steps we did in March. And therefore, we, we are constantly collecting data about the overall situation in Germany. And it was one of the most exciting times if you're just looking, if you're just interested in data, because there has been so much movement in, in, in it. So, for example, if you look at the question, what is like the biggest challenge for you personally, like a poll that we conduct since mid of March, you you could see that in the beginning in March, it like the biggest challenge or problem was like the fear of getting infected. Like Germans were were scared about it because you maybe saw the pictures in Italy and it's it was coming closer and so on. And then the more we could realize that it might be not so hard here in Germany and the hospitals are like, I don't know, are still well equipped and there's like space, this fear began to sink. And the biggest second biggest challenge that became then to rise was like social isolation, the missing mobility and yeah, being stuck at home uh, with the families. It has, what I think is interesting, it, it has never been a real fear about financial implications. So I was actually surprised by how optimistic Germans have been there has been, of course, like a certain shock in March when you think like, okay, maybe our economy crash crashes. But latest in April, like Germans were back to optimism saying like, I'm I'm not scared that my job will be taken away. I'm, I'm not scared that my company will shut down. Um, it's it's going to be okay. And that's something that I found very interesting. So Germany's doing all right. <laughs> that's good to hear. Nice. I don't know if, if Germany does all right, but at least Germans think so. Yeah, which is good to hear. That's reassuring, people being optimistic in these times. Um, of course, the other big, the sort of big upcoming polling monster is going to be the US elections. Mm. And I don't know how much that comes into play with you being um, focused more on on polling here, but I would still love to hear your opinion on it. You know, people are obviously saying now that we're going to have the same situation we had back then. Everybody's rooting for Biden. But in the end, um, the volatility of opinion shaping and making, especially in US politics, is so large that that people fear it's going to be the out same outcome that we had four years ago um, in the Clinton-Trump election. How do you approach international topics such as that? And um, and what are your general thoughts on that sort of volatility and inability to predict when it comes to larger political events such as that? So until now, we are only based in Germany. So all the data that I have is only looking at German elections or uh, yeah, German politics or German market research. And for the rest, I can only read the news as everyone else, mm. even though we plan to go to other countries also in the next years. But um, that hasn't been the case before. I think the, the question you had about, like, do people actually tell me the truth when I poll them? is always a question being discussed whenever pollsters haven't predicted so well. And it seemed like they didn't do a good job uh, four years ago in the U.S. And I mean, 
I read different studies. There's also there has been also pollsters who did quite a good job, and there has been others. And I think it gave them at least enough time to readjust their models and to to look at the mistakes they did in the past, especially for those who haven't predicted right. But I think the overall picture that we got here that all pulses were wrong is not is not completely right here. Yeah, that's interesting. And I mean, because um, the American style, I'm Canadian, so I'm not American, so I come from a different <laughs> perspective, uh, looking looking down on them. Yeah. Um, very important to clarify at this point. Very important <laughs> at this point. Very important to clarify. We have very, the very handsome Mr. Trudeau. Um, it's an interesting, you, you talked about... Um, these different uh, products and pollsters and stuff like that. And there's, there's companies uh, like 538 out there, which are, I think also going in that same direction as you. Um, and as a founder, how do you, how do you see that as, do you see that as competition ways to uh, pivot product innovation? Do you kind of look at these other markets and how they're doing it? Because 538 was a, a big company that was, uh, I don't want to say criticized, but they're the leaders in, especially in American politics with regards to polling data and they got it wrong. I mean, I think it was like 65, 70, 75% chance of, um, Donald Trump losing, but also they had to reclarify that people also don't understand the data that it's still like, if I flip a coin four times, it's not unlikely that you know, so how do you see that as a founder with regards to with regards to innovative products and innovative product development? You always want to know what your customers want. You always want to know what the market does as well. But on the third step, you always need to be forward thinking, which is usually ahead of competition and your customers. So how do you as a founder kind of balance those things with day-to-day stuff, running the company, but also trying to be competitive in a changing market? I mean, of course, we look at um, other companies and other products and see what's going on in the market Mm. either in Germany or outside of Germany. Uh, To be honest, like outside of Germany is always a bit more fun because (laughs) uh, especially in that industry, I I feel like Germany is a bit behind. But what I think has been changing also over time is that we make ourselves not dependent on other companies anymore. So whenever I see now that a competitor or like another company in the same mm-hmm. in the same industry managed to do like or managed to get like a big funding, then I I don't get scared anymore and I think I have to pivot now and I have to do exactly like they do because I'm I mean, we know exactly where we stand. We know what we have achieved so far. We know what our product is, and we know exactly what we still have to do to to make right. better. So I think, especially after after the first years, it's important to focus and to stick to your plan. Not saying that you shouldn't be agile anymore, and if there is like a like huge change, of course you should right. react. But that's never the problem in a startup. And I think in a startup, more often the problem is that there's too many ideas, too many options, and you have to choose the right ones. And I think the reason why we still exist after more than five years and wh- why we tripled our revenue uh, year by year is not because we jumped on every idea we had, but we sticked to the core idea, and that's something that makes you also sleep better after a time so yeah i bet if you stick to uh to being like in being a founder then it's also important that there's like a month where you, where you can sleep and where there's right. like a lot of stress but then you should take the time in in, in spending time for your self-care and so on exactly yeah and i think that's a great point um especially when you're 
um, building up as a founder, uh, the idea is always so near and dear to your heart of what you're doing, but it's also, it's, but also you can't do it by yourself. You need to build a team around you to help support and, and get the product built. Um, and it's, 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 it's refreshing to hear that you have such clear vision with regards to what you want to do in terms of product development, but how did you build Civi? So who, who works there? What's important to you as a founder when you're hiring a team? What are some of those things that, uh, going from just the, uh, ideation process conceptualization, and now you're in the scaling and you know production side. So, how do you build a company around that? What are some of the things you look for uh, in team members? Um, that's a tough question. <laughs> I mean, there's so many things that you could do wrong, and I think we did also every mistake you could do. The the people you need around you in the first month and years in the startup are completely different to the people who work in our company now, um, mm. like in the sixth year. And that's nothing bad. It's just like in the beginning, you need, of course, people who love the chaos, who love to right. be part of the early stage company where you have beers in the evening and you enter the office at nine or 10 and then you, you stop working in the evening, but you still stay in the office and discuss ideas and everyone is responsible for everything. And of course, as um, the further you develop, the more the more structure you get into it. So as in probably every startup, like our first employees and still the majority is people working in tech. So mm. when we founded the company, we were looking for developers and data scientists who support us and like everything else. So every single piece of what is not development and like coding in data science has come by well, has been done by me and my co-founders no matter if it was like ordering toilet paper or <laughs> applying for a loan at the bank or like getting like a new office space is of course done by yourself and that changes over time so you get then a structure having expert in sales having expert in marketing and so on and that's something yeah you have to give up, give up control a little bit to trust, to trust people. Yes, you can do this. Yeah. And then of course, like if I look back, there has been like two major points of change. One was when we were like more than 30 people where I feel mm. like that has been like quite stressful for us to actually implement structures and management theories yeah. because you couldn't control everything by yourself and you have like a second level of management and so on. Uh, and then maybe like even before it was when we were more than 10 people. So when there is mm. like, <laughs> when we start having teams. Yeah. How do you go from being, you know, somebody who comes from a background where you thought you were going to have maybe an employed career at a political organization to managing a team of 30 people? Like it must be so much learning by doing on the job. I'm wondering how, yeah, how did you get yourself to be a good boss? Were there any trainings that you did or any other advice that you got from people to, to become the manager of a company like that? And I think for me, that was, has always been, not always, but it has been one of the hardest evolvements in the camera, like the hardest things uh, to mm. learn during, yeah, during our company history because of my age. So I was quite young when we when we found the company. So I, I haven't done that before. I think I have good intuition in these kind of things, but uh, I had to learn a lot. And I think the it's especially something that needs to come from your inner self because you need to develop a self-confidence that even even though the person in your team is now 20 years older and is is a man, is maybe like behaving differently than you would normally do. 
is a person that you can guide and you can also tell what to do and what not to do. And that has been something where I did probably mistakes in the beginning, which I will, yeah, which I will always do. Like we all do mistakes, but yeah, um, I'm very happy about the tolerance that everyone had on the way. I think it's a really powerful message, you know, um, this, yeah, you have to believe in yourself and especially your story is a really powerful story too. Um, we mentioned gender biases earlier in the way that people use your polls or who would answer. And clearly we have really stark gender biases in the German startup scene as well with only about 15% of all founders being female or co-founders being female. And as we know, like flow of capital to female founders is also a huge issue. And this is a something that you're engaged in. So yeah, we mentioned earlier, like not you're not just the co-founder of Civi, but you're also carrying a lot of titles and responsibility to perhaps pass on the trust that you found in yourself and the fact that you you know, you became to be a leader of a company like that to other women. Maybe you can share with us a little bit your engagement in that way and what you think also needs to happen to get more women into, um, yeah, into the startup sector. It takes some time to understand that one could also be already a role model for others. But I think it's very important that we don't only look up at, I don't know, <laughs> at like business women of very large companies, but also on the way to that, that there is like certain role models on every step. And um, I also realized that it is important to raise your voice on these topics because until we published the first study in Germany on female founders, I think there haven't been any others. So there was just, again, a lack of data that we wanted to fill. And It's actually very sad to see that we are still on like 15% only um, share of women founding companies, which cannot be, yeah, which is weird because we have like 50% women in society. And my impression, like not only my impression, so what we see is that the typical founder is academic, uh, has an academic background, is in his 30s. So that's a typical age where it becomes also a bit difficult for women and men to um, combine the own career and maybe also like the planning of an own family. And mm. as long as we still have more, more burden, <laughs> more uh, women like taking care of, of the care work, that is something that will be reflected also in self-employed women and women founding a company there i'm very sure that this is something we could change and of course it starts much earlier as well we have i mean we're now all grown up and we grew up in a time where gender roles were maybe even stronger than they are now and we've been educated with certain roles we should fit in no matter where we grew up i think and that's something we should reflect very early with with children that We treat girls differently than boys. We encourage boys rather to um, study STEAM, go into like a STEAM career um, than we do with women and with little girls. And that's something we can already tackle in school, especially because we see that girls are often better in school. They have better grades. Mm -hmm. So I think if we could, if we could bring uh, entrepreneurship and tech into schools, I would think that much more women and girls would be encouraged to go the path there. Absolutely. 
And it's fantastic to have role models like yourself to look up to for a lot of young girls. So I just also want to say thank you for doing the work that you do and being so vocal about it. So supporting things like creating a female founders monitor or really pushing for the things that you just mentioned. I think it's so important to do that and to lead by example. So thank you very much, Janina. And also thank you so much for being on our podcast today. It was really fantastic to have you and learn more about Civi and your work. Yeah, thanks again for having me. That was a lot of fun. Definitely was. <laughs> and um, yeah, uh, Brad, uh, what's our next <laughs> our next funnery going to be like? What have we got yeah. coming up on Rewrite Tech? Yeah, thank you again for joining us. We really do appreciate it. We love having the, uh, uh, especially startup uh, founders from the Berlin scene. It's always great. And we will have also more, uh, I guess you could say, legends in the uh, startup scene. We have uh, some people coming from the rocket industry, uh, rocket internet industry coming in who are the, I guess you could say some of the rebels when it came to uh, the startup industry in Berlin. Uh, and also we'll be going back into uh, machine learning and big data with some, some of our colleagues from Deutsche Telekom. So we'll be going back into how large organizations utilize large sets of data. So again, thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you, Yanina, for joining us and hope we hear from you again soon. Geraldine. Maybe, maybe we should be getting in some polls on how people are enjoying Rewrite exactly. Tech from Civi on these days. So in Spotify. Watch the space for some corporations coming up and some polling on how you like us. You can always send us feedback, of course, on uh, the blog website that we have and the different channels. We look forward to hearing from you. And we're also always open for suggestions on who we should have on the show. So, yeah, um, thanks very much for listening and hope you tune in next time.